Finishing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The president's going to make sure whatever deal we get is in our best interest, that it's fair and reciprocal trade, that it protects our intellectual property, and that it actually uh, has safeguards to make sure that the Chinese um, follow through with whatever commitments that they make. Federal resources and frontline defenders are overwhelmed at the southern border. And the fiscal year 2020 budget provides sizable funding of an $8.6 billion for full completion of the wall and other border security resources. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome to the program. Um, all right, fantastic. So we are listening and watching as a number of scandals just break through the entire, the entire, I'm just checking to see if there's sound for you guys right now. We had a little bit of a weird, weird thing with my uh, sound and everything here at the studio. So welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on Urban Family Talk and American Family Radio. Oh, yep. So we're not having sound. Is there sound now? How about now? All right, welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Uh, fantastic to be with you. And we have a jam-packed show for you today. We are going to be chatting with some a, a fantastic guest this hour. Um, talking with, we have Benjamin Weingarten. He is actually a senior fellow at the London Center for Public Policy Research and a senior contributor at The Federalist. And we are also going to be uh, talking about there's a few things going on. Um, Washington State is making churches or wants to make churches pay for abortions. Now, I know this is something that's weird to me. Um, when we look at abortion in this country and how many different ways you can go about getting it funded, it seems ridiculous that we would need to have churches funded as well. Like, why would a church need to fund abortion for its employees or people who are working there, most of whom don't believe in abortion anyway? Why wouldn't a church need to do that? But it's about command and control. So we're going to discuss that. Um, we are also going to talk about uh, Pelosi making the statement about impeaching Trump just not being worth it. Um, you know, I, I got to say, when, when, I, when I look at that, when I listen to that, um, she's right. But I just wonder exactly what has, has happened, what, what has occurred that would make her, besides the question itself, that would make her so adamant. She was adamant about this. So I want to listen to that. It's number four. I just don't believe in it. They wanted me to impeach President Bush for the Iraq War. I didn't believe in it then. I don't believe in it now. It divides the country, unless there's some conclusive evidence that takes us to that place. Thank you. So did you hear what she said? I just don't believe in it. They wanted me to... Uh, impeach President Bush. So she's been around a long time, first of all. It's kind of disturbing how long she's been there um, doing the same thing. But then there's also the issue of, of you know, we got to give her credit when she tells the truth. And she's telling the truth here. I think what she's seen is poll data. And she's also heard from constituents that if the Democrats waste the next two years that they've got before the president is up for reelection, if they waste that time trying to impeach him, then they're going to be losing voters. For every minute they're talking about impeaching the president, they're going to be losing possible votes. 
I want to give you a couple of Bible verses. It's our encouragement time. Our daily encouragement today, we're going to talk about division. Jude one nineteen says, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. First Corinthians 1, 10 through 13 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters come from Chloe's household. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This refers to uh, divisions and denominations and some doctrinal divisions. God wants us to follow the one true gospel of Jesus Christ as is found in the scriptures and not to divide ourselves along denominational lines. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have denominations and we can't all serve Christ in our individual churches, but it means that we're not to sit around arguing and bickering over which doctrines we follow as opposed to winning souls for Christ because it, it is far more important than arguing over whatever the issue of the day is when it comes to uh, you know the doctrine. If it's not in the Bible, then, you know, leave it. Don't let's not argue over it. And I see that happening a little bit where people are picking sides over some issues that I'm not saying the issues aren't important. I'm not saying they don't have ramifications in their lives for their their families or their kids, but it's becoming kind of a popularity contest. Well, this person, you know, believes the same as I do on this issue. And so, and we're, so we're together on this and it becomes something that supersedes the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to be unified. The enemy is not worried about who we follow particularly. He's worried about what we're doing for Jesus Christ. So that can be the delineating factor. Does this bring souls to Christ? Does this win, uh, win fame for the, for, for the nation, meaning for, for Jesus Christ's nation of believers, does this glorify God? Does it honor him? If not, leave it. It's, it's that simple. And that's something we all need to hear every now and again. Um, so that's the encouragement for today. So now I get, I got to talk about this uh, Washington State Church. Um, that So there's a lawsuit going on, and it's a church in the state of Washington, which is... Um, they're suing the state. So this church in Washington state is suing the actual Washington state government, which is trying to force churches to pay for elective abortion coverage through their health plans. Now, this is, again, where I, I hate this because in my mind and in the minds of so many other millions of Americans who have employer-based health care insurance, what is contained in that plan should be between the health insurance company that is negotiating with the employer for the benefits and the employees who are signing the employment contracts. Those three groups have the ultimate decision-making capability because if, if an employer says, I'm not going to cover a uh, well, well woman, then that means they don't value female employees and female employees should be looking for uh, employment elsewhere. If they say, we're not going to cover, uh, you know, prenatal and OBGYN and, and, you know, women's health as it pertains to people having children, then again, people would have to govern that accordingly. That means any man who works for the company whose wife is on the plan wouldn't be able to get her you know, pregnancy covered so they can have a baby and, and expand their family. That is something that should be between the employer and the employee 
and the health insurance company that's negotiating the benefits. Now, why do I say that? Well, because who's closest to the problem? Who can ultimately make the decision? When a company makes a choice about what they will and won't cover, the employees have the ability to say, you know what, this isn't for me, I'm walking. And I, I know that the alternative to that is you need your job, you don't want to walk, but there are jo- other jobs out there, especially in this economy and this job market. No one has to work for someone they don't want to work for anymore. There are 7.1 million jobs out there that are available. And I know the argument from other people who like to criticize is, well, those are unskilled jobs. Are you saying that you don't believe that God can help you find the job with the benefits plan that works for your family, that you're just stuck where you are, there's no answer for you, prayer doesn't work, uh, God doesn't move in your situation, and your skills and your talents don't make room for you in the marketplace? Sounds like a lot of other personal problems are going on here. The most important thing we can do is stand up for our right to operate everywhere that we exist as Christians. And that's what this church is doing. And I'm glad they're doing it because if Washington State was successful in forcing churches to do it, they'd be able to, they probably are, the churches are the last round of defense. They probably already forced the employers to cover this stuff. So ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, they've sent lawyers to represent Cedar Park Assembly of God to challenge the constitutionality and legality of a new state mandate that requires a Seattle area church to fund abortion if it provides its staff members access to group health insurance. Now you could say, well, with the mandate gone, you know, you could, this, this church could simply stop providing medical insurance to employees. They could, they could force their employees to get into an association plan to form their own association and get in a plan on their own and negotiate directly with the health insurer. And that is an option, but no church should be coerced to pay for abortions, least of all a church that dedicates its ministry to protecting and celebrating life That's a quote from ADF legal counsel Alyssa Graves. She was talking uh, in a press release saying further, Cedar Park believes and teaches that every human life begins at conception and is worthy of protection at every point until natural death. So that's pretty, pretty astounding. Um, and, and, And the bill from Washington State actually says if churches pay for maternity coverage, they must pay for abortion coverage as well. So if they're going to pay to, have, to bring a baby into the world healthy, they have to also pay to kill a baby. Can you, can you, I, I still don't understand this. It's the deception of the enemy. He tells lies, people believe it, and then they start behaving like this. So the bill is called State Senate Bill 6219, and it was signed into law last March, so about a year ago. And Cedar Park purchased a group health insurance plan in order to provide high-quality health care coverage for their employees and fulfill its legal obligation under the law. And then, you know, um, then they, they came under the law. Of, and this was introduced by Democratic State Senator Steve Hobbs. And so Steve Hobbs actually received criticism from Catholic bishops that there was no exclusion for religious organizations and Hobbs replied, true to, true to the Democrats, he said, if you don't like it, you can sue. This is about the woman and not about the religious beliefs. Unbelievable. He pro- and he probably goes to church, you know, uh, he probably goes to church with that horrible, awful, no good attitude that he's sporting there. Uh, so now I want to get to the phones. If you would like to call in, the call lines are open at 866 963 2037-866-963-2037. We are going to be really, really uh, jam-packed today on the program. So I'm hoping to get to some calls today, but um, we have to make sure that we can also cover all of our stuff. 
We're also going to be talking about Rio Grande Border Chief Karish and his statements. He's So he's a border chief on the Rio Grande sector, which is one of the unprotected areas of our border. And he's going to be, we'll hear a little bit of audio from him about how they're apprehending MS-13 members, people from Turkey, China, you know, so these are not, I'm going to talk about Americans who are originally from these countries. They're apprehending actual Chinese nationals, Turkey nationals. And in addition to that, there's a story out, and I know some people are really ticked off about it, but it's the way they feel, and they've written this letter for a purpose. It's ICE officers writing an angry letter to President Trump. They're apparently very unhappy that, according to them, uh, the president has not answered all of his promises on stopping illegal immigration. Specifically, the ICE officers who endorsed President Trump in 2016 say he's failed to follow through on the get-tough promises he made on the campaign trail, specifically that he has allowed catch and release of illegal aliens to go into overdrive. They say they're being roped into mundane tasks like opening doors on vans to release immigrants already caught by Border Patrol agents. They say that it's dragging the officers from their usual duties of nabbing fugitives or scouring local prisons and jails for immigrant criminals who lived illegally in the U.S. who are ready to be deported. And that's something that I don't think Americans really, we don't have a grip on how many people we're paying to house and feed in prisons and jails and lockups who already have deportation orders. They came into the country illegally. They were given a court date, an ankle bracelet, and a letter, and they went off into the interior country, and and they've been working for 3, 5, 15, 20, whatever, a, a long time. And then when their case finally comes up to the docket, they don't show up, and so they're not there to hear the Immigration and Customs Enforcement judge say, you are no longer allowed to be in the United States. You need to be deported. And since they don't appear to defend themselves, they don't get to appeal the action, and therefore, deportation orders are given for them. That's why we need such a huge force of, uh, you know, people to work for Immigration and Customs Enforcement because they literally have to run these people down. They have to scour the jails because sanctuary cities don't cooperate. And sanctuary cities are where a lot of these criminals go to hide out. So when they're arrested for committing other crimes besides entering the country illegally, then their names are supposed to go to a database that can flag them for ICE so ICE can come and get them and deport them. So why would they be opening up vans and doing mundane tasks? They're blaming Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and um, the acting director of ICE, Mr. Vitello, for this new development. So this is ongoing. We'll continue to cover this as we learn more. We'll be back in a minute. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a pre-born pregnancy center, she encounters love and compassion and gets to meet her baby by ultrasound. And I was like, I'm gonna go to the abortion clinic. And I already had my mind made up. This mom didn't make it to the abortion clinic. Instead, God led her to a pre-born center. And the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces and then she's like, it's two. And I'm like, I just start crying. I start texting my friends and like, I can't. The Ministry of Preborn was able to help this mom save not just one life, but two through ultrasounds. Preborn centers help save babies' lives and souls. Preborn runs and leads Christian pregnancy centers all over the country. To find out more, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Your love can save a life. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. I have a friend who loves to be in the center of the action where things are happening. He has a hard time saying no, so he tends to overcommit. Then things start slipping through the cracks and he can't keep his commitments or meet the expectations he's raised in the minds of others. So people get frustrated with him and disappointed in him. It's sort of a downward spiral. I've learned the hard way that sometimes no is the most positive word in the English language because what we say no to frees us up to be able to say yes, hopefully to the right thing. It's helpful to know ourselves and be realistic about our capacity. Can you really do this? Do you have what it takes to meet the assignment here? Have you built enough time into your schedule to be able to follow through on what you just said you'd do? Listen to these words in Joshua chapter 19, verse 9. The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah. For the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them. So the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. There are two principles I just want to point out from this verse. Number one, take some things off your plate. Reduce the amount of things you commit yourself to doing. Then number two, sometimes the best way of helping someone is to give something away. Say, I'm not able to do that myself, but I know someone else who can help you. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Each time you make a commitment, your integrity is on the line. If you can't handle what you have, then give some of it away. You've been listening to Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and heard on the weekly program Living a Legacy. To view an online transcript of today's thoughts by Crawford, go to livingalegacy.org. That's livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are happy to have our next guest on the program, Benjamin Weingarten, Senior Fellow at the London Center for Policy Research, Senior Contributor at The Federalist. Thank you, Ben, for joining the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about this Huawei. Am I saying that right? Huawei, a Chinese company. They have this whole... 5G network that they're rolling out, and they also have other products that they currently have in markets all over the world. And it's alleged, and perhaps we have some proof, I'm not sure, that they are using their their software and the things that they sell in the marketplace to embed spying software into our phones and telephone systems, et cetera, from China. Yeah, well, I think that it starts to look at this from a, a 30,000 foot level, which is Huawei is the largest telecommunications product provider, service provider, infrastructure builder in the world. And as a China-based company, they essentially operate at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party. They are a state-sanctioned organization. They're considered a national champion, which means that the government of China, in particular the Chinese Communist Party, has supported their rise and their dominance, and they are also subject to Chinese laws when it comes to national security, which means that if China says we need to collect information from you as a global telecommunications network builder, service provider, product provider, uh, China can essentially scoop up that information via Huawei. And, and Huawei should be viewed as 
a much bigger player in terms of China's overall ambitions to be a global world power in general, and in particular, have control over the global telecommunications infrastructure. And as you rightly noted, Huawei is the leader right now in 5G, fifth generation telecommunications network technology. They're trying to roll that technology out throughout the world, and the U.S. has been engaged in a comprehensive effort to try to push back against that abroad, as well as restricting the usage of Huawei products and infrastructure in the U.S. government and perhaps as well in civilian use down the road. And, you know, just as we were coming to air yesterday, the U.S. government for the first time uh, via the ambassador to Germany, uh, Richard Grenell, came out and told our German counterparts that the U.S. may not engage in full intelligence sharing with our German allies anymore to the degree to which Germany uses Huawei products in their infrastructure. And I think that underscores just how serious an issue this is. So I saw that, uh, and I was I was concerned because one of the things that we're able to do in intelligence sharing is, you know, we're able to identify threats for um, terrorism, like potential terroristic acts that might be in the underway in Germany. They're planning them either in Germany for Germany, or they're planning them in Germany, but they're going to execute them in the United States or Great Britain. And so that ter- that that terrorism can be thwarted through the sharing of information. So for Germany to decide to partner with Huawei is, you know, it's basically them saying that partnership is more important than um, dealing with terrorism, which they have a huge problem with it. Their number, they, they have a two rating on the State Department list of places that Americans should travel to, which means extreme caution. Really, it's it's kind of like a do not travel there. Absolutely. And of course, as you and your listeners probably recall, several of the jihadist masterminds of the September 11th attack themselves were based for long stretches of time in Germany. And of course, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of returning jihadis from ISIS and elsewhere in the Middle East, returning to their European home countries. And Germany already had a major jihadist problem before that, given refugee resettlement there. So it is absolutely a major issue, and it implicates U.S. national security as well as national security for Germany, Europe, and ultimately the world. No question. So let's talk a little bit about options. Um, if if we're saying that they can't use Huawei, and you you did just describe there that they have the most advanced 5G network, and that's why they're rolling it out, and that's why everybody's so excited about it. What can they use instead, and why why are they the leaders in that area instead of say an American company? Yeah, it, it's a very good question. Well, and part of it is, and this is the case with many of these sorts of companies based out of China that. Over time, part of the way that they developed uh, their technologies um, and were able to build valuable portfolios of products is through allegedly intellectual property theft and the like, which is really a slap in the face to America because you have to remember, putting this in a in broader context, America really gave China entree to this world economic architecture that we built, we maintained, we set the rules of the road for. and. The whole theory, uh, the whole basis of the kind of U.S.-China partnership was that there would be free trade and ultimately liberalization of economics would lead to liberalization of politics. And actually, the opposite has happened. China has become less liberal as they've grown richer and as the volume of trade has increased. Uh, And as a result of, in many ways, unfair trade practices, stolen intellectual property, 
and the like, it's given them, in a sense, an unfair advantage over everyone else. We play by the rules. China doesn't, so China gets all the advantages from that malign behavior. And so, unfortunately, the pricing of uh, many of these products, and in particular those from Huawei, uh, is basically able to undercut those in the West. And it should be noted that even if it was uneconomic, China might still be pursuing it. You know, many of the relationships that China has engaged in more broadly when it comes to, for example, its Belt and Road Initiative to build infrastructure throughout the world, a lot of those projects have gone belly up. But essentially, China doesn't care. They don't care if the economics don't work because these projects serve strategic goals. In the case of Belt and Road, it's to give them leverage over other countries and a foothold into the territory of other countries, which means essentially an expansion of Chinese sovereignty. And in this telecommunications space, it's also an expansion of China's sovereignty in some sense, just in a, in a digital sense. And in terms of uh, you, you brought up, you know, what can we do, essentially? And what it really comes down to, I think, for the Western world is that we have to value national security over saving some money on telecommunications infrastructure. Infrastructure isn't just some other good and service. This is about basically the free flow of information. And if your adversaries have access potentially to significant amounts of sensitive information, that poses a real problem both to governments and to civilians as well. And what I wrote about recently in The Federalist was specifically the fact that our federal government has put into place law which says that no federal agency essentially can use Huawei products or even vendors who happen to use those products themselves. So the idea is let's start with keeping it away from the most sensitive area, which is government. And Huawei is now engaging in a lawsuit against the U.S. government. And what I found so breathtaking about it, not that it's all surprising, uh, is that they're essentially trying to use our Constitution against us. So in their lawsuit against the U.S. government, they claim, they reference James Madison and the Federalist Papers, and they reference Alexander Hamilton, and they try to make constitutional arguments which say that the U.S. government shouldn't be able to restrict a company that's directed by a foreign competitor, if not adversary, uh, from having access to our most sensitive government communications, potentially. And I just find that amazing because they talk about in their lawsuit that there are separation of power issues, there are due process rights issues, and there are bill of attainder issues. Essentially, uh, in this case, a company that is being punished without any recourse to fight the government's punishment. Well, China has no separation of powers. Mm -hmm. China arbitrarily and capriciously punishes millions of people uh, inside its territory. And, and outside. They would... Yeah, they they exactly. punish their, their, their citizens who live abroad when they want them to return. If they feel they're having too much fun being outside of China, they'll tell them, we'll, we'll kill your family if you don't get back here. And the Chinese citizens have to go back because they don't want their whole family killed or sent to a work camp. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 they are very, they're very much into command and control. But I, I saw the lawsuit, Ben, and I thought what was funny about it was in addition to the breathtakingly it, like it's so obvious to me as an American that they were talking about their rights here in America as if they give those same rights to their citizens, which they do not. But it was also the fact that they claim to, in, in essence, they're saying they have a right to operate their company the way that they do. And we have no right to try to protect our sensitive information from the way their company operates. I, th I think it's kind of astounding. But I'll tell you what, Ben, one of the things that I think is the reason that drove them to do that lawsuit other than the fact that they just have, they're just galling. Um, they're doing that because they noticed that liberals here in the United States actually use 
the any law that's available to them to argue things that are completely nonsensical. And judges here say, yep, you're right. That's constitutional. Yep, you can do that. Nope, the government can't do that. So they're they're hoping that some wacko judge will give them the same kind of rights that liberals here have gotten through doing the same tactics. I think it's a fantastic point, and especially in the Trump era where judges, many federal judges, and you can find a random jurisdiction that's going to have exactly the sort of judge that you're describing, will take a particularly uh, minimal view of what executive authority is or even potentially what congressional authority is if it is about advancing a Trump administration agenda item because mm-hmm. they're prioritizing politics over justice, over law. And in this case, you know, of all things, our national security is imperative, and the government's first job is to protect our life and limbs so we can pursue our happiness. So the mm-hmm. idea that an adversary, a, a company that's directed by an adversarial regime where our government, our intelligence community has taught us explicitly that based upon their investigation, uh, this is a company that is used to engage in espionage and uh, the heads of all of the major intelligence agencies and, the, and national security agencies have all said they would never use these products. They would never advise that their friends, their families, their children would use these products. Uh, it, it's absolutely absurd to think that a lawsuit like this would seriously be considered. But I think you're absolutely right that they take a lesson from the left, which is that you try to win any way you can. You can yeah. it on every single ground that you possibly can. And you even use the Constitution against us if you think that it's going to serve your purpose. And I, I think there's also something else that we kind of discount, which is it's not so much that they believe in our Constitution. They just simply had people read over it. They looked at other case law and they said, find me something in that Constitution that says we can operate as a company and let's, you know, you throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And that's what this lawsuit is. I, I don't think they're going to give up. Obviously, this is intentional. They've, they, they've been on a long, multi-decade plan. First, it started with when they realized that when we put our, our companies in, in China to use their manufacturing, that they had access to all of this information. And so that's why president after president, they've, they've just steamrolled through. If you want to keep building and using our cheap labor, you have to let us see everything so we can understand how to you know, build these screws. Not the, the drawing isn't enough. We need to see the intellectual property behind it. Then they started flooding the market with their cheap knockoffs. When they realized that was working, they thought, you know, we could do a lot more with this. And they've been on a plan to do just that, do as much as possible with the information that they lift from America. I remember being on school board years ago, Ben, and sitting in a conference for Missouri School Board Association members. And one of the workshops was about how Chinese teachers take these information gathering trips to the United States. And they come to the U.S. because they want to see what a United States public K-12 through classroom looks like. And they're always shocked by, first of all, that we just use those old school desks from like 100 years ago. And the kids sit on plastic seats. And there's, it's not sensory, um, like the Chinese schools, they try to put this sensory environment in where it's, it's this, you know, kind of pleasing to the eye. American schools are pleasing to the eye, but they're not as, you would think they'd be fancier for the, the product that we put out. The, the students and the people themselves, they would ask questions and all the things they want to know about not testing methodologies, not um, how to get kids to do math faster. They've already got that down. All of their questions were centered around how teachers got kids to be so creative and the teachers would say well we actually don't 
like when kids come to us, they're already either creatively minded or they're not. And we just cultivate that. But our curriculum is basically to cover all of the bases because every kid's not creative. Some of them are more scientifically minded. Some, you know, and the the Chinese teachers and instructors always came back to what parts of the curriculum, the classroom, the training, the continuing education were centered around fostering creativity in kids. So one of the principals asked them at the end of one of these tours, why is your focus so uh, like you seem only focused on creativity in your questions? And the Chinese instructor said, we are trying to figure out why, even though our students excel at math and science and clearly are, have better knowledge uh, than your kids nationally, we outscore you, we out-educate you, but your kids produce, they grow up to produce iPhones and you know they, they grow up to do these things that are creative. They create products and services that then are able to be used anywhere in the world and our kids don't do that. And we want to know how you're creatively, how you're, you're uh, cultivating the creative aspect of the, the American kids. That tells me that they, they know that the stealing will come to an end at some point. And when they can't steal it from us anymore, they want their kids to be able to produce the same things that our kids can produce. But they're not able to get it because of communism. Now, they, obviously, no one will tell them that. No one will tell a person from a communist country the reason your kids aren't creative is because of communism, in part. But that's that's what I see in my mind. Yeah, it, I, it's a it's just a fantastic point and such a telling a- anecdote. And it really does come down to I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. We have a culture of liberty here, and that fosters entrepreneurship and dynamism and outside the box thinking and risk taking. Mm-hmm. And communism kills. All of those traits. So that's why the best that they, they have been able to do is essentially uh, steal from us to be able to catch up in many of these fields like technology, but they're not necessarily the creators and the innovators. And when, they, when we finally cut off the spigot, when they can't steal from us anymore, then they will be stuck because they, they literally, they have to have an original piece of new technology or a new idea from America to take and take it apart and then back engineer it to make their own thing. They can't do it on their own. It's kind of stunning um, that we would even give them the opportunity to do that. I, I don't know why we don't have some mechanism for doing the manufacturing here in the United States. We're creative. We're smart. We should be on that. Benjamin Weingarten, fantastic to talk to you. Senior research fellow at the London, senior fellow at the London Center for Public Policy Research. Thank you for being here today. Hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. He was great. Um, We'll be back with more. We'll take your calls at 866-963-2037 right after this. What does it take to be a sports success and a team player? Here's Pro Football Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. If his career had been longer... Hall of Famer Gail Sayers might be the undisputed greatest running back of all time. He only played four full seasons before injury cut his career short. In 1969, his teammate and friend Brian Piccolo was diagnosed with advanced cancer. Their relationship inspired the hit TV movie, Brian's Song. As he accepted the George Hallis Award for Most Courageous Player that year, Sayers told the crowd they picked the wrong person. I love Brian Piccolo. Tonight, when you hit your knees to pray, please ask God to love him too. Gail Sayers was an incredible athletic talent, but even more important was his uncommon inner strength. 
Tony Dungy, best-selling author of Quiet Strength and the Uncommon Book Series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Jay Warner Wallace. I think we're blessed as Christians that we don't believe something that's not rooted in history. We believe something that had to actually occur. As Paul said, if the resurrection didn't actually occur in history, we're to be pitied. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity, is it's something you can actually investigate. I'm grateful for that, because as an investigator, that's exactly how I came to faith. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is coming June 20th through 22nd. Learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. Navigating through life can be like piloting a ship. Equipped with Chris Brooks is navigating through the culture with the lens of a biblical worldview. So I know what it's like to go through seasons of change, but I also know what it's like. And I can say to you, God is faithful. Sometimes God has to allow discomfort to come to push us out so that we can embrace the new thing that God wants to do. Equipped with Chris Brooks, weekdays at noon central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. The Senate is likely to sync up with the House soon and vote to overturn President Trump's national emergency declaration for the border. That likely tees up Mr. Trump's first ever veto of legislation. Veto is Latin for I forbid. Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution basically says if the president likes a bill, he can sign it. If he doesn't, he can veto it and send the legislation back to Capitol Hill. Alexander Hamilton engineered the idea of a presidential veto, writing in Federalist Paper Number 73. Hamilton argued in favor of the veto, saying the president may periodically need to hold Congress in check. But the founders wanted Congress to have one last chance to go over the head of the executive. That's the veto override. Congress never overrode a single veto until 1845. President John Tyler holds the ignominious distinction of becoming the first president to have his veto overridden. Presidents have only vetoed legislation 2,500 times in U.S. history, and Congress has only overridden a veto 111 times. That works out to about 4%. The Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I want to provide some perspective on the challenges facing our men and women at the southwest border. Though I cannot speak for all of the components of Customs and Border Protection, I can provide a first-hand account of the complex border security environment and ask for your assistance in helping our frontline men and women. In our line of work, Border Patrol agents rarely know exactly who or what they will encounter. In a single day, an agent may arrest a violent felon, encounter a large group of families and children, or rescue a drowning migrant sent in the river by smugglers. Of those we encounter, we don't know what condition they are in or what their intentions may be when they get here. Less than two weeks ago, agents working near Roma, Texas, arrested a Salvadorian man after he entered the United States illegally. Record checks revealed him as an MS-13 gang member with extensive criminal history in the state of New York who was previously deported. Welcome back to the show, y'all. Do you hear that little uh, squeaky pipsqueak voice I just took on there? I just get annoyed when I hear that MS-13 members who've already killed folk and then have been deported are back through the southern border. They know just as well as we do that once they get deported, it's just a matter of time before they make their way on back because America is just like a big old open piggy bank and they can come in here and rob, steal, and kill and do anything they want to do, which is why I'm such a huge advocate of the Second Amendment. When Americans start shooting folk back and stop, you know, stop, stop just passively being slaughtered, 
I bet you they'll think twice about coming up in here, these MS-13 gang members. But until then, they can just come on back and kill again. What's the big deal? You know, it's 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 totally unacceptable. Uh, we'll get to the rest of that audio in just a minute. Right now, I want to go to the phones. We have Joe in Arkansas. And if you want to call into the show, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Looks like we lost him. And so if you want to call back, that's perfectly fine. We'll be happy to talk to you. Uh, 866-963-2037. So let's listen to the rest of that audio from uh, it's border Rio Grande Border Chief Car- Karish. His name's Karish. Um, he also talks about the migrants from Turkey and China that he's been intercepting. And that one's number two. People are traveling thousands of miles across hemispheres to attempt to illegally enter the United States using the same pathways as Central Americans. Contrast this incoming tide of migrants with our limited resources and infrastructure at the southwest border, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley and Tucson sectors. So this is every single time we discuss this and we listen to audio and, uh, you know, the testimony of these Border Patrol agents, they always point to the fact that these people are coming in and they're, it's, it's not, as President Trump said, they're not sending their best people. These aren't the best people these countries have. These are the ones who they don't have any way of doing anything lawfully in their own country or they're already criminals there. And so they're coming here to spread a little bit of criminality our way. And as I've said before, we're all full up on crazy and criminals. We have plenty of homegrown American crazies and criminals without them sending theirs over here to do harm to us. We just don't need it. All right, let's go back to the phones. We have Shannon. Hey, Shannon, thanks for calling the show today. Hello, Miss Stacey. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, I wanted you asked a question earlier about American manufacturing and why we don't keep our manufacturing here. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, they like the cheap labor. If corporate America would stop falling, would fall out of love with cheap labor, then and pay American workers, then we could have keep our manufacturing, keep our jobs, keep our you know, so we don't send are things over there for them to reverse engineer and try to sell their cheap knockoffs here. I know. I know what you're saying, Shannon. But some of the issues that we've had with, uh, with our labor force here in this country is once our labor force is unionized, then the idea that you can get paid, you know, 18 bucks an hour for working in a screw factory, it's just not, it's not maintainable. And I know when you say cheap labor, we're talking about people who are working for a dollar an hour or $2.50 an hour making screws. But there's also the capability. And and, uh, we've talked about this on the show before, how um, Tim Cook, who used to be the CEO of Apple, he talked about how in the United States, we we can't create 100,000 MacBook Pro screws, the teeny tiny screws that are needed to screw MacBook Pros together. We can't create those in three or four days where in China, because it's a communist nation and the people are really slaves, they can say, I'll mobilize a 24 hour, you know, three, three, three day, three shift, 24 hour a day operation for you in a couple of my manufacturing plants. And I can get you 100,000 of those tiny screws in four days. And so the difference in that is, you know, the Apple as a corporation wants to bring something to market in this really compressed time frame where in the United States they have to plan it out and it takes a lot longer to get it done because 
You know, we don't have a ton of factories doing shift work anymore. We don't have a ton of factories, period. And when we did, it was still, you know, as you said, people need to be paid a living wage here. In China, they don't. So it's it's almost like uh, the difference between eating fruit and people who prefer to eat, you know, sugary sweets with made with white sugar and white flour. You get a much faster payback or result when you eat the piece of cake than you do an apple or a pineapple. The apple and the pineapple are good for you and they still taste sweet. But if you want that ultra sugary experience, you have to go for the the cake or, or whatever that's made with the sugar and the white flour. It's not good for you, but it's what you want. And that is what manufacturers in this country, companies in, in this country want that experience that they can only get in China. We have to find a way to get a happy middle ground or they're, they're stealing us blind and it's just crazy. Um, Ray in Texas. Hey, Ray. Thanks for calling the show. Hi. I've Hi. worked in, um, I've been in the military and then I've worked here in the Guard. Oh, thank you for your service. The, thank you. Um, I, I watched uh, President Trump on the border and and he asked the commanders down there to, to tell about all the different people they're bringing in. But one thing I never hear is what they're bringing with them. They're bringing weapons, and they're bringing some things that America doesn't want to know about, and they're not telling about. They're things that will take down a plane. I mean, crazy stuff. Hmm. And every other country has sovereignty over their, over their border. They have their sovereign border. And, you know, look at the other side of it. If let's say some parent wants to take their child away from their spouse in the divorce custody, what do they run to? You know, something like that. Don't they have a right to, you know, criminals or felons from the United States crossing across their border too? I mean, they're a sovereign nation as well. No other country lets people come in the south border like we do. Yeah, it's it's true. It's unique to our country, and people feel like we have to because we're too rich and we have too much and. Uh, we, we should be forced to share it with people who are coming in the country illegally. Thanks, Ray, for excellent comments. Um, Joe in Arkansas, thanks for calling the show today. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. Um, I wanted to comment on what I heard you say about how you don't know why we don't have the mechanism to manufacture smartphones and, you know, all this cutting-edge technology in this country. And I think it's because our leaders have embraced this false theory of free trade that says that if we can get things cheaper from other countries, uh, then we're better off buying those things from them. But when we do that, I think the disadvantage, I think what we lose under working under that theory outweighs what we gain, because mm -hmm. then when we buy these things from other countries, the money drains out of the country, and we don't have the circulation of the money inside the country that we would have if we produced those things there. We lose the jobs in the industry in this country that we would have had if we produced those things there. And most important, we lose the skills and the know-how and the knowledgeable and skilled people, you know, that know how to make those things mm -hmm. in this country so that we lose the edge in making the innovative developments that are going to take us into the future, that are going to make us the leaders in the future uh, by buying those things from other countries. Because wherever mm -hmm. they're actually producing those things, that's where the people are going to have the skills and know-how to innovate for the developments in that field. So I think we lose a lot more than we gain from following this theory of free trade. And as far as finding the happy medium that you were just talking about, I think we would have that if we would have tariffs on foreign products, on imported products that would make them more expensive than the 
same products produced in this country. And then if we would maintain a really good free enterprise system inside this country, we'd have plenty of competition amongst the American companies inside the country to keep production you know, up to date and innovative and efficient. You're right. You're absolutely right. But you know what? There are too many liberals out there who have power, real power, who every time I say something even slightly as good as what you just said, I, the, the response has been, well, that's protectionism and that never works. I've also been told you just want to shut out all of the other nations and closing yourself off will make us like China was, where China was closed off and look at that stunted their development. They were the most developed nation. They closed themselves off from free trade and then they became the least developed nation. And I, I get it. We need to have interactions. But having the system that you just described doesn't mean we don't interact with foreign countries. It just means we say in our country, in order to make sure that because what you said is so true. Whoever is at the screw factory that they didn't used to be able to turn out 100,000 screws in four days. Some business owner from America said, I need to be able to get this many of this whatever widget made in this many days. And they put the demand on them. And so they created a mechanism by which they could mobilize the employees and get it done. We did that. It was called World War II. Remember, all the women were in the factories making the bombs and, and putting together the, the machine parts to actually put the plane on the planes, like plane parts and all that. We did that be out of necessity. If we had outsourced that, another nation would have been able to do it. We wouldn't have been able to do it. And that is what you're talking about, which is just fantastic. Thank you for the comment. It's excellent. Um, Gerald in L.A., hey, thanks for calling the show today. Louisiana, I think. Stacey, yeah, Opelousas, Louisiana. All Asian right. Country. Hello, Stacey. Thanks for calling. Okay, I have a number. Of, you're welcome. Thank you for being on the air. Thank all of y'all. Okay. We, the owners of companies, I have a total overview. The owners of companies want to save money, so mm -hmm. they outsource our stuff. Plain mm -hmm. and simple. The love of money is the root of all evil. Okay. What does Nancy Pelosi think? When AOC and all them get in office and start ruling, does she think she's going to be impervious to the? You, does she uh -uh. think AOC and them are going to leave her alone? This rich white woman with her mansions, I don't think no. so. And the no. border people, the same thing. They, the border people come and look. I've heard in the news, you know, they had a few of the the, the immigrants run over people. And our mm -hmm. Americans who were born here are mourning their people. Mm -hmm. Another thing, I just called Walmart. And now this, God might be using, and I made this observation, God might be using this to get me to stop going to Walmart. Mm. I'm telling um, you, because I already had to give up Target. Yeah, but, but I'm, I'm willing to do it. See, I'm, I feel like in America today with all the different options, we have alternatives. So Walmart is convenient and the prices are great, but I don't need my milk or my butter and eggs to be that cheap. I can pay a little bit more for that and not, not give the money to Walmart. And, and that's, I think, the point on all of this. You just struck an amazing chord, Geraldine. The, the chord on all of this is we keep saying we need the cheap manufacturing, but do we really? At our stage of development as a culture, does it matter if a you know un, a pack, six pack of undershirts is nine ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine? You might say, well, a family in poverty might that might matter to them. But we have a social safety net here, where most people in poverty, if they get all the benefits that they're in, entitled to, 
their median income is like $50,000 a year. Every state in the nation has these programs. So if is it more important to pay $6 less for a package of T-shirts that's made in China or to have them made here in the U.S.? And instead of buying my husband four of those packs of T-shirts, I buy him two packs and, you know, we a little more careful with how we treat them in the wash so they last longer so we can have our national sovereignty and have our ideas protected. And it's that way with everything, a cheaper car, cheaper everything. Now, that means the cost of living goes up a little bit. It means you have, instead of having, you know, 50 T-shirts in your drawer or 30 T-shirts, you have 10. But do you need 50 or 30 T-shirts? Do you need, you know, I, I got a closet full of clothes at, at all different sizes where I lose weight, I gain weight. Do I need to do that? Do I need all those clothes? Do I need all the shoes? Even the boots, y'all. I know this is close, cutting close to home now when I start talking about how many cowgirl boots. But do I need them all? This isn't about need. It's about us saying everything has to be dirt cheap. And the exchange for that is... You know, look what we have. Geraldine pointed out, we have the people coming over the border, killing our people. We have the companies, uh, uh, and especially the Chinese government, stealing our actual ideas and creating knockoffs, which basically decreases the market value of Apple and all these other companies that have had their ideas stolen. So the question is, um, how much are we willing to give away to keep having the dirt cheap American lifestyle? We don't need it to be this cheap. It can be a little hair more expensive and the stuff be made here in America by Americans. And then we have people to hold accountable when stuff falls apart, when we don't like the way it's operating, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's time for us to decide if we want to make that trade. I'm willing to, I've already, the hardest for me was letting go of Target. It was hard. You guys might remember me talking about it on the radio, how hard it was. It was so ridiculously hard to stop shopping there but I did it because I believe I I can I'll never forget the day our daughter was trying on a dress in the dressing room and a man walked out and I ran in there and I was like did you did you see a man and she was like no I didn't see anybody and that was the last time we were there god bless you we'll have more for you tomorrow right here on Stacy on the right